Hey, doing another one. These have gotten really long lately. I'm not sure what to say about that other than I'll look at the timer. I'll look at the clock and I'll be like, wow, I've been doing this for an hour and a half. And I'm, I just figure like that increases the likelihood that something's going to suck. Increases the likelihood that something's going to suck the longer you go. But you know, it also increases the likelihood of something sucking is giving some sort of disclaimer or like self-commentary at the beginning of an episode like this. Now, the reason I want to do another episode is I was thinking about when somebody uses the fragility of something either as a selling point or to kind of gather support for that thing. And you can see where this plays out politically, where what fuels both the two major parties in America is this claim of endangerment or this claim of its own fragility where if we don't do something now, if you don't elect this candidate, your very values will hang on a precipice. Well, rather, your, your values are hanging on a precipice right now. And if you don't vote for this candidate, down they go, down they go. And your values are going to fall down in that abyss and they're going to hit the walls of that abyss and they're going to shatter. You don't want your values to shatter. So vote for Joe Bama bin Biden. Vote for Joe Bama. He's the only man who can keep the values that you hold dear from shattering on the walls of the abyss as it falls endlessly. In tiny shards. Tiny shards. Um, now you can see where like people always kind of market their politics around this idea that something fragile will break if the other guy gets elected. And I mean, uh, you could, with Republicans, it tends to be our traditions, our values, our economy our way of life, these things will be gone. You are under attack. And then, the, of course, with Democrats, your values are under attack. Your values of progressivism, open borders, open borders. Your open borders are going to get closed down. Um, no, like where it's like the idea that just, I mean, what we've seen from Democrats in recent years is where the idea is that our basic humanitarian values are the thing that's hanging on that precipice. And if you let a Republican into office, he's going to actually start killing people in droves. He's going to kill actually the most fragile people. If you vote for that Republican candidate, if you vote for that guy, that Republican He's going to take all of the most fragile communities, all of those endangered species that you are protecting, and he's going to kill them. He's going to kill them. That's kind of the idea. And then, you know, the Republican side is, is more like we are the endangered species. Our entire traditional way of life is an endangered species, which it turns out is true. You know, it turns out every single culture as it is right now is an endangered species because things will change right out from under your nose. It's gradual, but you will have moments where you suddenly notice it. Even though that process of culture just changing over time, it is gradual, but yeah, you'll have moments where you notice it and that, that makes it feel more sudden. Where you're like, oh, I just noticed that that change happened, but... Meanwhile, it's been happening all along, but suddenly I just, I finally noticed it. But Republicans tend to think like our entire way of life, it's being eroded. And so our entire life is endangered. And like I said, there's always evidence of that because it's always true. People change. It doesn't matter how traditional you are. And at best, you're just going to become a neo-pagan role player. Like, what is being traditional? What does it mean to actually stay the same as a human? I don't think we have any evidence that that's ever happened. That an entire group of people has just stayed the same physically, biologically, technologically, culturally. Even some tribe who's been left unattended, 
who's just lived in this small tribe, you know, untouched by the modern world, I would bet you in their verbal lore, I would bet you in their oral storytelling that they note certain changes over the years. I bet the elders talk about how their elders were different because you see that everywhere. You see change everywhere. And what's really funny is studying the mafia, you know, as deeply as I have, you'll come across these FBI reports from the 1950s and 60s where some old time member was informing to the FBI because it turns out there were a lot more informants secretly informing back then. But something you'll commonly hear is the old time members think all of the younger members are inept. The idea is that none of them have done as much as the old guys used to do. The old guys were tougher. They were more vicious. They were, you know, better at, you know, finding business opportunities. You'll see where there's always this idea that the older generation was somehow more pure. And so you see these mafiosi who are talking that way, where they're like, basically, like, these younger guys should get off my lawn because things used to be better. And you see that now from from mafia guys as well, where guys now will be saying the same thing. I mean, there was a guy, uh, Nick Gentile. He was a member of both the mafia in the U.S. and Sicily from the early 1900s through the 1930s. And so he really saw all the changes, and he later gave a little bit of information to authorities, and he wrote an autobiography that was published in Italy. A friend of mine translated it for me because it was never published here. Sorry, he didn't translate it for me. A friend of mine once translated it and just has like a a PDF Microsoft Word file that he shares with people. So he didn't do it personally for me, but he was able to give me his his translation of it. And you see that even from him. Here, this guy was, you know, probably close to 60 years old in 1940. And he's writing this autobiography and he's talking about how like the old guys were different. The old guys were tougher. So it's just something you see again and again in everything. The idea is that the older generations were tougher. And conservatives really love that. You know, it's why boomer conservatives are so attached to the, the greatest generation, the World War II generation. A lot of their parents served in World War II. And there's a reason why we respect that. There's a reason why I'm proud of the fact that my grandpa served in World War II. My grandma did also. Both my grandparents actually served in World War II. And there's something very impressive about that. But, you know, conservatism tends to take that and make that the example. And then they point to everything else and they say, because everything else that has happened in our society doesn't match what the greatest generation was doing, it all sucks. It's all degenerate. And you know what? They might be right. Like, what's funny about all this is it also parallels the Kali Yuga, where the idea is that the Kali Yuga is the cycle of degeneration, of hatred, of contempt, of pettiness, lawlessness, indulgence. You know, that's what the Kali Yuga represents is this this fall into degeneration. And so it's funny to me how that mirrors what I'm talking about here. The idea that as we get older, we tend to think of the younger generations as inferior in some way. And to be honest, I feel that way. I, I absolutely feel that way. Like I'm, yeah, I'm 35. I'm young. I'm, a ma- I'm one of the main millennials. I am the main millennial, if you didn't know. If you didn't know that, well, that just, that shows you how humble I am. I'm so humble that you didn't get the news that I'm the main millennial. I keep it very quiet, but it's just, it's a fact. As, and as the main millennial, I can tell you that even in my young age, even at 35, I look at people 5, 10, 15 years younger, and I just think, man, you with your little puff haircut, oh, you shave the sides of your head, and there's just like this little thing on top that goes puff. You look really cool. Oh, yeah, that's a cool little puff haircut, 20-year-old. Nice, oh, oh, nice streetwear. I hear that you guys call that streetwear. Looks like you're wearing a bunch of, like, neon garbage bags, and you got your, your little puff hair. Oh, look at, the little, look at the little puff hair. I bet the girls love you. I'm sure they do, actually. I'm sure the girls do love that. I'm sure the girls love the little puff do. I'm sure they love the garbage streetwear aesthetic 
If the girls like it, that's all you need. That's the stamp of approval. If the girls like it, it's approved. But no, I look I look at the younger generations not with contempt. Like I don't hate them. <laughs> I don't I don't hate people for being younger than I am. But I do notice that process starting to play out where I do look at certain things and I think, "Yeah, you don't know about that." Yeah, well, you didn't do this. Like, I mean, because I have noticed little things. Like, I noticed that I don't see groups of boys just out in the world. Like, I don't see groups of boys between the ages of, let's say, 10 to 14. I don't see them in little packs at parks. I don't, I very rarely see them out doing things. Like, I will see them on bikes. I will kind of see them in their neighborhood, like on bikes and playing in the neighborhood. It's not like kids don't play. And I don't want this to come across as like, some, you know, these kids are just spending all the time in the smartphone internet, you know, the, the kids are just spending the time at the smartphone internet and nothing else these days, you know, they, I don't want to be one of those people, but I'm, I'm just saying it's a simple observational fact that I'm out in the world a lot. I go to a lot of parks. I go on a lot of walks. I spend a lot of time outdoors, even just driving. I just don't see like a pack of boys just getting up to something, not even doing anything bad, but just getting up to something, adventuring. And, uh, you know, that was something you saw when I was a kid. Like, even though we had video games and TV and movies, still, we, we got in little packs and you'd see us at parks. And, you know, I don't, I, I, I don't know how, like, a pack of, like, four or five 12-year-old boys would fare at a park if, let's say, like, an audiophile approached them. Like if, if, you know, cause at the time I remember feeling pretty safe. Like when I was a 12 year old boy and I was with like four or five, you know, let's just say like a group of five or six little boys. Cause I mean, I see, you see 12 year olds now. I mean, you see 12 year olds by the time you're 13, you're looking at 12 year olds thinking, man, they look young. So it's like, by the time you're like 35, you can't tell the difference between a 12 year old and a five-year-old, <laughs> you know, like, like I'm serious too. Like you'll see kids and like, they'll be like, Oh, he's 12. And I'm like, I thought he was five. Uh, <laughs> but like when I was a 12 year old, like hanging out with a pack of friends, I remember feeling pretty safe. Like if you were just with one friend, I remember like one time a car followed us, uh, and we had to hide in alleyways, you know, when you're with just one other friend when you're 12, you know, you feel a little vulnerable if someone messes with you, if an adult messes with you. But when you got like five 12-year-old boys, you feel pretty safe. But that said, maybe that was just a feeling because I don't know how a 12-year-old would fare. I don't know how a group of even five 12-year-olds would fare if an audiophile came into the park. I mean, God forbid, God forbid an audiophile were to see five little boys at a public park and approached them. Because you know what he would do there, right? He'd ease them into the situation by saying, hey, I got a, hey, I happen to have my, uh, my MP3 player. Hey, kids, I happen to have my MP3 player here. It's a really nice one. This is one of the more expensive models. And you know, MP3 players are actually better to listen to music on than your smartphone. Because see, these are made for, for audio playback. You get a little, you know, a guy like me, you know, let's not use any categories or terms, but a guy like me notices you get a little bit better playback out of an MP3 player opposed to your smartphone, which because you, your smartphone, you think about it, it has all these different things going on. You're getting messages. You t- if you're like me, you're doing a lot of texting. If you're like me, you know, you're doing a lot of texting. And so... You want to just listen to your music and have it just come to you straight because you, you don't want you don't want uh, your iPhone to be uh, or as I call it my me phone. Uh, you don't want your iPhone to be, uh, you know, using space for messages, phone calls, Internet. You just want you want your audio player to play music and nothing else. And so I got my MP3 player here. And would you believe it? I have these headphones. Three thousand dollars. I mean, to you, you're a kid. I bet $3,000 sounds like a billion dillion. I bet, I bet that sounds like a billion dillion. You know what? You guys like music? You kids like music? These are really expensive, so be very gentle, but listen to this. You don't want somebody to go up to kids and do that to them. Because you know what they'll do next? They'll say, yeah, didn't that sound great? 
didn't that sound great? These $3,000 headphones. It's like you never heard. It's like you're hearing music for the first time. It's like you're hearing music for the first time. But you know what? I just got a speaker system installed in my car, which is right over there. I got a speaker system. It's got a big subwoofer. See, the next thing you know, they're, they're going to get the kids in the car. And once the audio file gets the kids in the car, it's up to God at that point. The only, the only thing in this world that can prevent a tragedy at that point is if God himself intervenes. Because all that audio file has to do is hit a couple buttons on his dashboard and that's it. Those kids are going to be hearing probably the nicest car stereo system they'll ever even see. They'll never even walk by a car with that nice of a stereo system, let alone be sitting there hearing it crystal clear audio with just the right amount of subwoofer. No, but anyway, you know, I don't like to pretend to be an audiophile even for a little a little segment here. Consider it a PSA. Cuz that's the thing is like people don't tell you what a you know, people don't tell you what a predator is going to say to you. Hey kid, you want some candy? Like they didn't update their example book for like 50 years. Like when I was a kid, they were still saying like, "Oh, a pedophile and excuse me, an audiophile is going to come up to you and ask you if you want candy. Like, you need to update your example book. Like, give us some better examples. If you're going to tell us to, like, fear pedophiles all the time, give us some examples of what they're actually going to say. Like, I know it's different every time, but, like, why not explain to us what the grooming process is like? Why not explain to us what, a, what red flags to look for? You know, it doesn't make any sense to me why it's just like, don't talk to strangers. And if a man offers you candy, say no. Just say no. It's like maybe you should explain the whole process uh, of, of how an audiophile breaks the ice and then begins grooming the child. Because that's w- what most situations are going to be. But anyway... You know, it's just just one of those things. I mean, who knows what this episode was about? The fragility. The the fragility that certain people kind of use to market themselves or the way that certain ideas get marketed with this fragility. I mean, what I was going off on, my point was, was that you don't see little boys around anymore, like just in packs, like playing. And because of that, I think like you guys are going to suck when you're older. Like I see that and I kind of sneer at it. I think, like, you're not going to have the same experience as I had, and that's going to make you suck, which isn't true necessarily, you know? It's not necessarily true, but I'm just, I'm of a certain generation now, and I may, I'm old enough to see certain generations who lived differently than I did, who grew up differently than I did, and as a result, I just, I have a natural skepticism about it. I would just say it's kind of a skepticism, like, are you sure that you guys want to skip that part of your childhood like are you sure are you guys sure that you don't want to just roam in a pack of 12 year olds this summer and see what you can get into like you sure you want to miss that rite of passage that's just how I feel but then you go to my dad's generation where it's like he's born in 1948 and you take my little like oh sometimes we'd wander the neighborhood at night we'd sneak out and wander the neighborhood in between playing video games and watching movies. And then you like you go to my dad who's born in 1948 where it's like there was no video games and movies. It was just all outdoor adventure. Like his entire childhood. Like I had my adventures with packs of friends. Like, And then you look at my dad and it's like that was his entire childhood. Is just like messing around with the neighbor boys out, outside. You know, just like getting climbing trees. Just spending your whole day outdoors. And maybe you watch a little TV. Maybe. So, you know, you can see where someone could say that about me. Oh, it's very cute how you think you and your friends, like, little, you know, little gang would sometimes spend time outside. And it's like, yeah, you know, the the older generations. Then you keep going back, and it's like, eventually you get back to cavemen. And it's like, yeah, well, you had fun playing outside. Well, I live outside. And not because I'm homeless, because we just live outside. And who's going to win in a fight? 
I don't know. I bet there's people today who could kick a caveman's ass. It depends, though. It depends because, like, at some point, humans got disconnected from their physical... Uh, like, in the same way that, like, if I'm walking batty, he knows how to use every part of his body for maximum strength. So even though he's the size of my foot with legs on it, he knows how to position his body. Like, if he wants to resist me, like, if he wants to go smell something or if he just doesn't want to walk a certain way, he can just subtly lean and put his entire body into it and use all of his muscles in conjunction with that movement in a way that makes it difficult for me, this giant monster compared to him, it makes it actually difficult for me to move him. He's actually matching my strength. But the difference is, is that my brain is so disconnected from my body. I've only learned things through exercising more. Like I, I, you know, I went through 30 years of my life without realizing that like if you lift weights and you think about the muscle that you're trying to work out, you're more likely to use that muscle. It's like that mind-body connection where it's like, oh yeah, if I'm doing bicep curls and I'm thinking about my bicep while I'm doing them, it actually causes me to lift more with that bicep. Like my body adjusts itself so that the bicep is getting way more of the focus. And that gets down into these like micro movements that you don't even realize you're doing. But very rarely are we as humans using the muscle we want to use. Very rarely are we using all of our strength, whereas a little dog just knows that. So that would be one big advantage that a caveman would have is, well, first of all, he might have no rules. You might be thinking, oh, this will be a fair fight. It'll be like a boxing match. It's like he might have no rules and he might bite your face off before anything even happens. You don't know if a, you know, you don't know what a caveman will be like. But the other advantage is just the fact that I bet a caveman, like even if consciousness and some, you know, even if the bicameral brain has, you know, started to mutate, whatever's going on, you know, that's making him self-aware, even if that caveman is on the road to self-awareness, I'd be willing to bet at the very least, he still knows how to use his body as one unit, like a dog. Like, and in the same way that Batty can actually match my strength just by leaning a certain way and using the right muscles very deliberately and naturally, I bet that caveman would just do that and just destroy you. I'm just, I'm just guessing. I'm guessing that they probably had a much more unified movement like in that they when they moved their entire I don't know we're, we're gangly look at, look at people walk like look at people walk down the street and this is probably a good example of what I mean uh, getting back to me just like hating younger generations it gets down to that where like I don't even like the way they walk like I'll see people who are 20 years old and I'm just like you know like they walk different <laughs> so you know that's naturally where I go but I guess to like bring this full circle back to my original point was just like it's it's a natural process. The mafia does it. Everybody who wants to musicians do it. Artists do it. Pretty much everybody talks about how the older generations were tougher. And some people take it to an almost pathological degree, though, which I think is where you get this really it's, it's where the worst of American conservatism rests where they choose these idols, they choose Ronald Reagan, they choose so-and-so, and they just say, that's how it should be, and anything that's not that is trying to undermine and destroy that. And the truth is, some things are. There are some elements that are trying to destroy that, but not everything is. And there's going to be natural change. Some things are going to change. And what's funny about that is a lot of the people who do that, like a lot of conservatives who are like, Teddy Roosevelt, dude. I, I don't even know if Teddy Roosevelt was considered, if he was a conservative, but it, that is one of those sort of figures that they'll go like, Teddy Roosevelt was an example of how a man should act. That's the kind of man that we don't have in, in politics no more. There's people who say things like that, and uh, they might have a point. Or like, you know, Ronald Reagan's, you know, Ronald Reagan, he was, you know, pretty much everything that we could ever potentially want from a, a leader. And anything that's not that is trying to undermine my entire value system. Well, chances are you wouldn't really have much in common with a conservative in 1980, even though that wasn't that long ago. 
I mean, it's 40 years. It's a long time ago, but it's like, it's not 100 years ago. But chances are, even in 1980, you as a conservative or you as anything, I mean, it's true for everything. I'm just using this as, as an obvious example because conservatives tend to think that I'm totally like my grandfather. I'm totally like my great-grandfather. I could totally sit down with my great-grandfather when he was my age and we would see everything exactly the same way. You'd probably sit down with your great-grandfather and he would just think you were some like the worst liberal from back then. Your grand, he wouldn't think like, oh, it's, it's wonderful that my great-grandson turned out just like me. No, he'd probably think like whatever the things you, you're caring about are, the way that you're living is less manly. You know, you're probably more liberal than the left wing was back then when your great-grandfather was growing up. And those things have mutated. They mean completely different things, which is my point is that even the people who don't want to mutate, like even the people whose entire platform is, we don't need to mutate, we're not going to mutate. And you want us to mutate because you want to destroy our way of life. Like even those people end up mutating. Like even the person who says, no, 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 I'm not going to mutate. That person ends up mutating too. And so it's this process of endless mutation. So, you know, and, and it's not true down the board. I think there's a lot of conservatism that recognizes that. I think there's a lot of conservatism that kind of recognizes that that's just how things work. But there's a lot of it that's based on this idea that's like, we're not going to change. Meanwhile, you've already changed. Meanwhile, you're changing right now. So anyway, there's this focus on fragility. And then you can see where the left wing... A lot of it's based on other people's alleged fragility, some which are fragile, but it's, I mean, the way the left deals with race and ethnicity is, is it honestly reminds me of, uh, it, it's, it's, it's seriously like they're talking about endangered species. And they would probably say that it's true. I mean, the way they talk, like you, they would say, well, that's, that's accurate. The police and the government are trying to kill these people. So you're right. No, they, they would probably agree with that, but I don't, it's not that, I don't know. It's, it's just that like, my point is, is they talk about it the same way a little kid talks about an endangered species. Like the way that a little kid like memorizes facts about endangered species on the back of a cereal box or something. That's often the level of sophistication that I feel the left has when they're dealing with these extremely complicated and controversial topics you know that, that relate to just like core group identities you know I, I do feel that it's often at the level of just being like here's a fact about the bengal tiger about white tigers here's a fact about white tigers in china you know it, it often feels that way and so a lot of their platform is based on this fragility, too, that precious things will be destroyed. And what else is that way? I mean, you see where a lot of just the way people promote themselves these days is based on this idea of fragility, this idea of something bad happened to me, listen to me. Something bad happened to me, support me. It's the American Idol approach that I always bring up where I don't know if American Idol was the first TV show, but I think... The first TV show. No, but I don't think American Idol was the first TV show to do this necessarily. But I do feel like it took it to a whole other level where the fact that I'm even aware of this as someone who's barely watched American Idol. But you watch it once, you watch it twice, and you see this where you know who's getting highlighted. You know who's in it for the long run because they give some sort of sob story about them beforehand. They tell some elaborate story about somebody's cancer, somebody losing their father when they were young, something they're trying to do as a single parent. And it's an interesting technique. Like, I don't reject it outright. I don't reject the idea of that because they're doing that because we like that. Like, American Idol wasn't doing that to torture us or make us sad. 
they were doing that because we as human beings like those kinds of stories. It's why so many stories, whether it's an adventure or, you know, something dramatic, it doesn't matter what it is, just any kind of story has got to be a story of contrast. It has to be a story where something changes, somebody reacts to it, and that adapting to change and thriving or succeeding in the face of change is important to any story, really. I mean, there's very few stories that can get away with not having some moment of significant contrast. And so that's there. I mean, it's just, it's the zero to hero idea. You know, it's like he was one thing, now he's the opposite from one end to the other. There's so much contrast between that extreme and the and its opposite. And so you can see where American Idol, that's kind of the idea there is it's like American Idol, it's this hammy show. I mean, it's hammy. Anybody who's on that is saying, I want attention, I want fame, I want wealth. Not to say that everybody's who participates in American Idol has impure, I mean, those aren't even bad things to want. Like, if you're very talented at something, I don't think it's wrong to think, hey, I should find a way to do this that will bring me wealth, respect, attention, fame, if you want it. You know, maybe I should do something to, you know, I don't think there's anything inherently wrong with that. But those things are funny because if you say that, like, if you say that that's what somebody wants, somebody will automatically assume that it's a negative. Like, if you say, oh, those people on American Idol, they're... They want fame, attention, wealth. You know, someone would be like, so what? And it's like, no, I'm just saying they do. In addition to loving the thing, maybe. Maybe they do love what they do. Maybe they love singing. But the point is, is they're on this show to get that outcome, to get themselves as much attention as possible, to open up as many opportunities as possible. Uh, And then I think as like kind of a counterweight to that, the show is like, now hear about something horrible that happened to them, making their singing aspirations almost like a, uh, they're going to fight this thing. Like, like that's, that's kind of what I'm getting at. Is it's like, they're going to fight this adversity they've experienced with their singing talent. The reason they're on this show is to Fight that adversity they experienced. Fight that sadness. Fight that loss. Fight that struggle. They're going to fight it by singing to you. And it sort of justifies the fact that they are ultimately looking for something pretty self-involved. You know, because as much as people, as much as musicians in particular are like, I just see what I'm doing is like a, a blessing to share with the world. Like, it's not about me. It's a gift I'm giving to you. A lot of musicians act that way. Give me a break. Maybe one in a million actually believes that. And that's not even me being cynical. Because if I were going to be cynical, I would say zero, 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 zero out of a million. Zero musicians out of a million truly want to do it as a gift and it has nothing to do with satisfying their own ego. But again, nothing's wrong with satisfying your own ego. Nothing is on its own wrong with singing, enjoying singing, and wanting to do it for as many people as possible. You just can't remove yourself from it. You can't remove the ego from it. But anyway, I think as a counterweight to these people's egos, so that it's not just a show where you're supporting people who, hey man, because I mean, people don't like that story. Like think about if it was the opposite. Like think about if there was a contestant on American Idol and they were like, She was born into a wealthy family. Her parents loved her immensely, and they stayed together. The family went on vacations to to Baja. They used to go to Baja. She got straight A's in school. She played sports as well. She had time for sports, and she lettered in varsity volleyball. She had a really handsome boyfriend who was not only the quarterback of the football team, but he was really respectful and he really valued her and uh, oh by the way she's beautiful by the way she's beautiful on top of all that and now she's going to sing better than anybody you've ever heard because it's not just good enough to have a, a perfect life like she's had she also wants a lot of money and fame 
Nobody's going to buy that story. So instead, it's like her volleyball coach told her she'd never be a professional singer. Her dad told her one time to turn the music off because she was playing it too loud late at night. Her parents told her to have a backup plan in case singing didn't work out. Now she's a single woman and just trying to make it. And her eyeball fell out. Her eyeballs both fell out. She keeps them in her pocket when she sings. So her life is really this immense struggle against all these things. And that somehow makes her more deserving of potential fame and wealth. Now, so you see where that's like that structure is built up, except instead of that, like, I mean, you know, people in the stories are, are, are much more like, well, when I was like 10 years old, my both my parents died in a plane wreck. And my brother got shipped off here and I got shipped off here. And then I, I married a guy who beat me and now I have a kid and I'm just trying to make it as a single waitress raising a family. And my real passion, though, is singing. You know, it's, that's going to make a story that people want to see play out more than little Miss Perfect decided to sign up for American Idol. Because she it was the only thing that she doesn't have because she has every freaking thing else. So it's like we don't want to root for that person. We want to root for the person who there's a story of contrast where if they win American Idol, it's a a rags to riches sort of story. So fragility is built into that. Fragility is a great marketing technique. And I've seen this play out in our culture a lot more. I've seen it play out with even just like corporations and businesses. Or I know somebody, a person I care about, but they started a business and I noticed in some of their marketing material, they take on that sort of approach where there's just kind of like, here's, I don't know, it's kind of created this need to have a certain sob story. And while we like stories of people overcoming things, which I think is at the root of all this, I mean, it's like what we want from a story is for someone to overcome it. And American Idol is telling a story. American Idol isn't just a show that showcases talented singers Part of the reason why it's a popular show, the reason why it's it'll go down as one of the the main you know, the main forms of entertainment of our culture during a certain period of time, like a long period. It's it was a, it's going to be a definitive part of our culture. Turns out, like people aren't going to remember the obscure bands you were into in two thousand three. You know, the, it turns out what they're going to remember is the fact that these people watched American Idol. Oh, the American people. Yeah, they watched something called American Idol, but it, it was a story, and, and we like stories that involve somebody coming from adversity and achieving something. If you watch NFL games, you see it all the time, too. Like, the commentators will be talking about players, and they very rarely, I mean, they never say, like, yeah, Brad Brad Fleming's, uh, yeah, he, uh, he came from a rich religious family. They sent him to the best private Catholic school. He went to, you know, the best college. He went to USC, and his life's just been perfect. His girlfriend's incredibly hot. They don't usually tell those stories. Instead, they talk about the guy who, like, had to live with his coach because his parents sold crack. And the coach, you know, gave him a break. And the kid was able to rise up off the streets and out of poverty. You know, they typically tell that story. And again, it's because it's what we want. But it does become kind of pathological. It does kind of infect the culture. And like I'm talking about how this is spilled out into just the way things in general are marketing, marketed. You know, where it's like even corporations will use this technique now. The idea of a story. I mean, I've seen it where the CEO will do it. Where the CEO of the company is telling some sort of sob story to sort of humanize himself, to humanize his company. And I end up feeling like it has the opposite effect because you know what they're doing. Like, even if it's true, you know what they're doing. And I think that's, I I guess that, that gets into like magic and stuff where it's like, sometimes it's about just knowing that a trick is being done at all. Like, it's not whether or not you, um, are convinced by a magic trick or not. It's not about like how good a magician is. It's about 
whether you realize that they're doing a trick or not. And that's kind of how I feel with any kind of marketing, with any kind of advertising, with anything that's promotional in any way, is I tend to see it and I, I just on a gut level, I, I see the trick. I don't see the substance of the trick. I don't see the mechanism of the trick. I'm definitely not hoodwinked into thinking it's real magic. I just kind of see the trick. I just, I see the outline. And that's how almost all advertising feels, where it's like, you're trying to do this. And that's just, that's the world of advertising. I don't know how else they would do it. Believe me, I don't actually have an opinion on the best way to, the, you know, what makes for a healthy culture? You know, what, how does a, a healthy culture market goods? would be a good question. I have never thought about that. This is literally the first time I'm, I'm even asking that question. But how would a healthy market try to advertise goods to people? I mean, you can kind of see where, if you look through old magazines, you'll see where advertising was very direct. And grocery stores will even do this today, where it's like advertisements for a grocery store will just be like, we have the best prices on hams, you know? It stayed pretty true to the way it was, but I mean, you'll even see it. Like, I'll go through old newspapers from 100 years ago, 120 years ago, and it's amazing just to see the ads because while some of them will have kind of a witticism of the time, for the most part, they're very straightforward. They're just descriptions of what they offer, and maybe there'll be a slogan, maybe there'll be something cheesy, but for the most part, it's just a description. It's not this elaborate game of advertising has to make you laugh. Advertising has to inspire you because you see that like at some point, obviously, like this idea infected the culture where it was like advertising has to try to make you laugh. And that obviously came about because, I mean, our favorite thing in the world to do is laugh. And there were probably some TV commercials in the early days, like before TV commercials had a chance to kind of congeal into what they are today. There were probably people who would watch commercials who would be like, that's funny. I mean, a commercial might as well be a TV show. It's all so new to you in the 1950s that you might have seen a funny commercial and thought, hey, that's funny. I'm going to remember that. But then after a certain point, when like every single business got the memo that you can market yourself through humor, well, it's a good way, you know, I'm going to see the trick every time. And I'm not going to laugh at a commercial on principle. And I already told the story on here about hanging out with those girls. And the other girl like took us back to her apartment to show us this really funny video and it ended up being a, a, like a car rental commercial. It was like this series of commercials that a car rental service had made about a guy who I think he stays in the back of the car when they return. I don't know what it was. It was, I was stoned and drunk at the time. It was some years ago, but I was just amazed that this girl not just thought a commercial was funny, but that it was something she wanted to show us. And it didn't even really register with her that there would be any distinction in our minds. Like in her mind, like she didn't put up a wall between the fact that it was a TV commercial trying to be funny and the idea that like showing that to your friends is insane. Like she didn't have any barrier there. Like if something makes her laugh, that's good enough. And that's amazing. And she's not stupid. It's just the way that her humor works, whatever's going on in this girl's mind. I mean, I loved her. I never, I barely knew her, but I loved her. Uh, But anyway, she's, she did have something, she was smart, but she had kind of some ditzy qualities. And we were both like, I can't believe that she brought us back to her apartment, which to be fair, was just like up the street, but still we were at a bar and then she took us to her apartment to show us this video and it was just like this series of actual tv commercials that she thought were funny but it just shows you like nobody had corrupted her like even just the world of television commercials hadn't corrupted her because that's what corrupted me what corrupted me is the fact that like you see enough commercials and you see what they're trying to do you get a feel for marketing agendas you know and you inevitably are just going to reject that stuff on principle but uh, with uh, the idea of, you know, using fragility to market things like, you know, you can see where it kind of followed humor. And 
there's also this inspirational genre of television commercials where there'll be like soft, maybe classical music in the background. And you'll see car, car commercials do this a lot where it's like, they'll, it'll be like an American made brand of vehicle. And they'll have a guy with a low voice be like, in our country, we work hard. And we also want to play hard. We like to go outdoors. We believe in each other. We believe in our family, whether it's barbecues or helping a neighbor raise a barn. Ford Truck appeals to you because you are what makes America. You are what makes America you. <laughs> you are what makes America you. That'd be great if they did that. Because you are what makes America you. Um, no, but you, there's like this whole inspirational brand of commercials that are equally in, as insulting, if not more so, than like commercials that are just trying to be funny. But uh, it's like their dick is hanging out. To me, it's like that's sort of the effect it has. It's like, it's like somebody, like when I see TV commercials that are trying to do anything, I mean, that's how, act, that's how cynical I actually am of like the world of advertising and marketing is that when I even know they're doing anything, when I even just see them doing anything, they could be innocent as all heck. But if I see a company doing anything via advertising or marketing at this point, I just immediately hold it in contempt. Not because I don't believe in marketing your services, but just what they're trying to do, whether it's an attempt at humor, whether it's an attempt at inspiration. But then the new one, and I think we're going to see this more and more, even in advertising, will be that fragility. There will be an, you know, it's already there because, I mean, like I'm saying, American Idol has been doing this. Political parties have been doing this. You know, basically anybody right now who is trying to communicate a story to the public does so by telling you about something bad. And so they're using this sort of fragility, whether it's a past fragility or a present fragility. You see it a lot with the way people use their mental illness, their diagnoses, because usually there's multiple. The way they use those as part of this story about themselves when it's not even relevant. Like, I'm all for removing the stigma of mental illness. I've, I've talked about mental illness on here. How, well, I think that there are certain diagnoses that make sense in the time and place in which we live. And there are professionals who have techniques for understanding and dealing with those qualities, those behaviors. We shouldn't be too attached to them. We shouldn't be too attached to the words. We shouldn't be too attached to the way these issues have manifested in our society that we live in, you know, we shouldn't be too attached to, to this, these things, like everything else is going to mutate. The way we deal with these things are going to mutate. The way they manifest is going to be different just based on the time in which you live, the way your neuroses mutate. I mean, like you had neurotic people 500 years ago, but their neuroses didn't involve their phone because they didn't have one. Whereas a neurotic person today, probably some part of their neuroses involves a phone where it's like, oh, they're, they're afraid of getting messages or they, they check when they send a message and don't get a reply within 10 minutes, they check every minute. They're constantly checking their notifications. You know, they're obsessed with their phone and then they're obsessed with the fact that they're obsessed with their phone. And they think that you have to like put your phone in a a Jenga pile in the middle of a table to eat dinner with their friends. Otherwise they'll play with it. You know, it's like, like that sort of idea, you know, you might think that, Oh, like phones must be inherently neurotic. And it's like, no, a neurotic person is going to get neurotic about their phone, but they're also going to get neurotic about their pitchfork. They're also going to get neurotic about, you know, raking hay about shoveling, you know, manure in the middle ages, you know, it doesn't matter what they're doing. Their neuroses is going to interact with the things that they are doing. And, uh, I don't know. I mean, I'm just going off about this because you see where like mental health and mental health diagnoses 
are used sometimes to promote things as well. And I'm not against that if the content deals with that. It makes complete sense if, if your platform deals with mental health. And it doesn't matter like how good you are at it. Like it doesn't like it's not a matter of quality either, but I think it's a matter of context. Like there is a certain context where I think using your mental health or using a story of adversity, using a contrast, I think there's a time and a place where that works. But I guess I just resent everything that I I guess I resent everything. No, I, I guess I resent the way that everything gets filtered through our current marketing and advertising system. Not because I'm fundamentally opposed to marketing and advertising, of course not. Just because the way that it's the way that system has changed is just I don't know. I feel that it brings all of our lives down a few notches when we interact with it. Like when you see an advertisement online, when you hear a, a pre-recorded sales pitch, when you see a billboard, just an ugly freaking billboard for something that you think is probably horrible for society when you see a TV commercial. And like there is a certain person who, like that girl that I met, who can innocently and laugh purely at a TV commercial. And I don't think they're stupid for that. I just think it's that person's brain hasn't been corrupted like mine has. But so I I do kind of reject this like fragility um, approach now too, because you are starting to see it used more heavily in the way that people themselves market whatever it is they're doing. But you can kind of see where you know culture or uh, corporations have latched onto it as well, because part of the whole like woke capitalism thing, when these corporations take on, you know, these sort of identity platforms. You know, you know, one reason for that is because these are fragile groups. In a way, it's like them saying, we're donating money to help save endangered species. We're donating money to help save pandas in China. Like, you don't know where that paper trail even goes. But they're saying the right thing. They're saying something virtuous. And again, though, they're, they're putting an emphasis on the fragility of something. Buy our product because gay people are, are a fragile, endangered species in our culture. So we need to make a rainbow logo for this month. But make sure you buy our product. And again, I, I think I mentioned this recently, but I was talking to a friend about it where I was saying like gay people aren't even the market of those corporations. Like when you see a corporation change their logo to a rainbow for the month of June, they're not thinking, dude, we're going to sell our product to so many gay, gay men. We're going to sell our product to so many gay men this month, dude. All we got to do is change our logo, dude. You know, they're not saying that what they're thinking is this is going to impress the much larger market of people who want to superficially seem like they support gay people. Like, we're going after those moderates and like left-leaning moderates and just like proud Democrats who will see this and be like, well, hey, I want to support someone who supports my gay brothers and sisters. I'm not gay. I'm not gay. I'm not gay. <laughs> I'm not gay. But uh, I want to support somebody who supports gay people because gay people are part of my brand, too. That's the sort of person that they're trying to reach. It's the person who's like, well, I support gay people. This company supports gay people. So I guess I'm buying Snapple all month. I don't, I don't even know that Snapple participates. I don't know that Snapple's even around. Point being, though, it's like that's the sort of person it appeals to more than anything. Like actual gay men, actual gay women, they're sitting around just like, mm, I don't know. There's, I know there are some who, who buy into it. There've got to be some who buy into it, but I know a lot of them are skeptical of it because people know when they're being pandered to the difference is that when you're not the target audience, when you're the sort of moderate liberal who wants to seem like you support gay men, you're more likely to buy into that shit because it's just, you don't recognize that they're pandering to you. You don't recognize that you are actually their target. It's not the much smaller population of gay people who are going to be like, yeah, 
guess I have to guess I have to buy this because they got a rainbow. They got a rainbow logo. I gotta buy this. I gotta buy this because I'm I'm a, you know, I don't think that's how it works. And I think when you know you're being pandered to, it's easier to see the trick. Like when you know that somebody is actually targeting you, it's much easier to see what's going on. Assuming you're not easily hoodwinked. Like when a uh, a used car salesman, like the classic technique of like, you know, if you could see yourself in this car, like imagine, you know, how you would look, you know, that sort of line of, of thinking, like the second that a used car salesman starts using that line on me, I'm going to know what he's doing. And I'm going to be like, oh, he thinks I'm stupid. He thinks that I will fall for that. And that's what I think when I feel like somebody's advertising something with me in mind. I'm like, oh, they think that I'm easy prey. You know, when it, and I don't, I don't see much. You know, I don't see a lot of advertising that seems to be targeting whatever niche I exist in. But I mean, I guess I am easy prey in other ways too, because it's like there are times where like a company will like release like a Seahawks cup. Like I'll be at the store and I'll see something that's like Seahawks themed, and I'll be like, I'll buy this. I'm a Seahawks fan, so I mean, I'm stupid too in my own way. Oh, if they support the Seahawks. But I mean, you can see where that's the same thing. That's my point, too. That's actually my point. Like, even though I'm susceptible in my own way, where I'll be like, oh, it's got a Seahawks logo on it. Cool. That's the level of thinking that a company puts you on. Like, they see you as that. They see you, like, when, it, when a company, like, it doesn't matter if they're a Seattle-based company and the owner loves the Seahawks. When they make their product green and blue and they put a Seahawks logo on it, and they call it the twelfth man soda. We gotta oh, we're, we're because we love the Seahawks so much. We're gonna sell the twelfth man soda. It's a twelfth man soda. They're thinking that somebody's gonna see that and go, "Me like Seahawks. Me buy this," which is pretty much something I've done. Like I'm not that bad. Like I'm exaggerating a little bit, but there are times where I've absolutely bought like a product because it has a Seahawks logo on it. And that's what companies are doing when they put the rainbow on it, too. They're targeting the same level of thinking. And uh, I don't know, you know, there are other times where I, I notice that I'm being pandered to. Maybe when it comes to football, I just turn into an idiot. But with other things, like I will notice on occasion that somebody is pandering to me. I mean, it could be personal. Because the thing is, your relationship with other people sometimes can be like you're the way that you respond to advertising where you will pick up on the fact that somebody a person you know is trying to get one over on you you'll notice that that individual is they have some sort of uh they're they're trying to pull one over on you i mean it could be like the used car salesman thinking that his tired old lines are going to work on you and they do work on people you know I, i feel like it's the same thing anytime somebody's trying to get something from you and guess what a lot of people do This goes full circle back to the original point, which is that people try to emphasize their own fragility. Like if stroking your ego, these are two things to look out for in your interactions with people. Not that I should be giving anybody advice about anything like that, but still, these are two things to look out for. One is when somebody's obviously buttering you up, when someone's complimenting you too much, when someone's at least pretending that they're putting you on a pedestal. It's almost like they're playing dumb, like they're, they're just kind of like, yeah, you know, you're like, you just notice when someone's kind of powdering your face a little bit, you'll just notice those moments and it doesn't happen a lot, but you'll notice somebody doing it and it doesn't feel natural and you know that they're trying to get something out of you and that happens. So it's something to be aware of. Anytime you feel like your ego is being stroked, look for that other thing. I mean, I've had people compliment me. I've had people like compliment my art before and kind of like build my ego up a little bit and then be like and I was thinking maybe you could do this for me for no money and if it was a friend of mine that'd be something else but if it's just somebody like peripheral or somebody I don't even know it's happened maybe once or twice like it's not like I'm getting this all the time but I've had those situations happen where somebody is like uh hey yeah you know like I'm a big fan I love what you do uh And then they ask you for something. And again, that's not something that's happened to me a lot, but it has happened and I noticed it. I knew, again, I knew what the trick was. 
You know, I, it doesn't matter what the actual props were. I just know what the, I know. I know that there's a trick being done. But then the same thing goes with sob stories, and everybody knows that. Everybody knows that there's a relative who calls you up and says like, and it's always the same person, but they say like, oh, you know, this this weekend, like I broke my toe, and then, uh, oh God, and then like Maria's mom told me that I remind her of Maria's other ex-husband and, uh, you know, and then like my, uh, my kid told me that like, you know, uh, I don't know. I'm doing a bad job here. Just somebody who, who like starts giving you like a big excuse for like everything that's gone wrong in their life. Like, man, I just don't know what I'm going to do. I need, oh, by the way, I need $2,000. And I was thinking maybe you could loan me $2,000. And somebody like sets up this big like story of their own. They're hanging on a precipice themselves. They're emphasizing the fragility of their situation. They're talking about all these bad things that have happened to them. And then they ask you for something. Like, oh, yeah, by the way, can I have something? They're basically marketing themselves. They're using fragility to market themselves to you. And they're saying, basically, if things don't go right, I'm going to shatter. I'm going to shatter on the walls of that abyss if you don't give me $2,000. Oh, well, the city said I had unpaid parking tickets. And, you know, I thought I paid them, but they, they, they tracked me down and they put a boot on my car and they towed it. I didn't see it because, you know, I was in the bar drinking. And then, uh, you know, and then like Maria left me because like I, I'm supposed to give her kid a ride to school. And then because I don't have my car, I can't do it. And it was just like the last thing in the world I needed. You know, I said, can I have $3,000? You know, it's like there's people like that and you know what they're doing. You know what the trick is. And either you love them and can help them or, or not. But like, you know what the trick is, is what I'm getting at. And you feel the same way when you're watching an advertisement that tries to do that to you. I feel the same way, even when I see it on American Idol, even though I think it's like, you know, an important part of the way they tell stories. Like, I, I understand that part of the appeal of American Idol is like this zero to hero sort of like single mother with one eyeball against the world. Like, I understand that's like... To say that they shouldn't have that is to say, like, I know how to run American Idol better than they do, which I don't, in case you were wondering. I don't know how to run American Idol better than them. But that doesn't mean I haven't seen how this has kind of infected our entire culture. And I mean, I was kind of avoiding getting into it, but it does play into the victim culture idea where increasingly victimhood is a path to power. And ex particularly exaggerated or even, you know, created victimhood, you know, exaggerated or manufactured victimhood have increasingly become a way to get your voice heard, which I think is important for real victims. I think there should always be a stage available for real victims to share their story. I wholly believe in that. But you can see where exaggerated or manufactured victimhood has become popular in part because people know that that's a way to get on that stage. People do manipulate it, and why wouldn't they? If you can manipulate something, if you can game something to your own advantage, somebody is going to do it. Somebody is going to try it. And if people succeed... What's stopping other people from trying to do it? So you can see where all of this plays into like victimhood as a platform. And sometimes it gets into victimhood just for the sake of victimhood. Not that I'm saying anything brand new here. Not that I'm really saying anything too interesting. I feel like I've talked about and other people have talked about like quote unquote victim culture enough. I don't feel like I really need to go into it. I only want to point out that it's a part of all this other stuff I'm talking about. The idea of like emphasizing fragility. And using fragility to sell things, using, using fragility to sell an idea and to make you think that you have the ability to stop that fragile object from shattering on the walls of the abyss. A lot of it's designed to get you to do something. People want you to do something. And one of the best ways to do that is play on the fact, manipulate the fact that you do care.
because most people do. This land is mine God gave this land to me This brave, this golden land to me And when the morning sun Reveals her hills and plains I see a land where children can run free Hey.